Hi and welcome to Tarad.2's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, policy, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Navroz Dubash. He's a professor at the Center for Policy Research. He works on climate change policy and governance, the political economy of energy and water, and the regulatory state in the developing world. Widely published in these areas, Navroz serves on the IPCC as a coordinating lead author, Government of India Advisory Committees on Climate Change, Energy and Water Policy, and the editorial boards of several international journals. In 2015, he was conferred the 12th TN Koshu Memorial Award for his work on climate change policy. I'm Kizi Manjan and I'll be your host for today. Hi, Navroz. Welcome to our show. I'm going to get started by asking you this. You've had a long and illustrious career. Can I please ask you to tell us more about a couple of defining moments in your climate change journey? Thank you for having me on this podcast, Kizi. I'm really pleased to join you and your colleagues and your listeners. I don't know about long and illustrious it's certainly been long and varied and very enjoyable. I've been actually very very lucky in my career and I'm going to sort of pick up a couple of moments that I look back on very fondly. So I got started in this business back in 1990 actually I I did some undergraduate work on the Narmada Bachao Andolan many people of my generation got their interest in environment and development issues from that movement and as part of that I did some interviews with people at a place called the Environmental Defense Fund and by a matter of luck I got hired my first job out of college was to build what is now called the Climate Action Network it didn't really exist it was a network of civil society organizations aimed at bringing people from the global south into climate change negotiations so I was extraordinarily lucky at 21 22 I was running around at these UN negotiations interacting with inspirational people like Anil Agarwal and activists from around the world. So that was fabulous, but let me sort of get to a particular instance. So the first meeting of this group, there were a bunch of northern activists and a bunch of southern activists. And the northern activists had typically been involved in the US Clean Air Act cleaning up sulfur dioxide pollution or the ozone negotiations, and they said, "Okay, so we are all united, right, as civil society. We think that developed countries should take some action first and 10 years later developing countries should follow because that's the formula that had worked in the ozone negotiations and the developing country activists sitting around the table looked at each other and they were typically local resource management ngos some of them had worked in the world trade organization and anti trade discussions and they said well no because what that would mean is that the south would have to drastically curtail its development and 5 or 10 years grace period is simply not enough and i was kind of really struck by this north south kind of difference at the civil society level and i've been in this game for 20 years and in a sense we're having the same conversation that we had in that room back in 1990 so there's a real sort of continuity so that's kind of one example about how the civil society politics has been just as charged as the formal politics you just said exactly that it's the same thing that is kind of repeating and something that happened so much earlier and as we go along even now so i want to kind of present how deep this challenge is and i hope we'll come to it later in the podcast but i think a large part of my career and many others have been trying to find ways beyond this kind of pele up dynamic in climate politics and i think there are glimmers of that so i wouldn't want to leave the readers feeling that we are 
completely stuck in the same place. But that has been the entrenched problem many of us have been trying to shake loose in a sense. Yeah, right. So India is facing some key challenges in the climate space. Now, I hadn't ever thought of India viewing the global efforts to rein in emissions as a diplomatic problem, one that other countries need to address and not us. Can you embellish further on this, please? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think it's a little bit of a generational thing. And I I have many young people who work with me and for their motivation is climate change as a challenge for India. And that is indeed my motivation also. But back for those of us who got into this game in the decade of the 1990s, the key construct was this idea that one of our diplomats really was instrumental in shaping called the idea of common but differentiated responsibility and respective capabilities. It's a long acronym. And what it basically means is, sure, we have a common responsibility. And that was what the original text of the negotiating UN document that was agreed with Rio said. And Indian and other negotiators put in the word, but differentiated. And it basically said, some countries have been much more responsible for this problem than others. And the objective in those early days was to say, we have to get on with our development. You guys have substantially caused this problem. You have to give credible down payment on solving it. And that was really the first 10 to 15 years of the negotiation is holding the line on that and trying to make sure that the developed countries rather actually did something concrete. So India's objective was really clear. Make sure that we could develop in whatever ways we wanted without our development being constrained by, not by climate change itself, but by efforts to limit climate change. So for a long time in Indian politics, uh, climate politics, fear of climate change has been secondary, very far down the list, compared to fear of constraints on development because we're trying to mitigate. And that has been the dominant problem. And our civil society has actually also been kind of divided on this in the sense that many civil society activists have thought of climate change as this kind of hegemonic discourse that is going to drive attention away from things that truly matter to people on the ground, whether it's deforestation, whether it's mining, whether it's uh, control over water or land. And that has seen as, been seen as much more immediate. It's only in recent years that people are beginning to come to an understanding where we see climate change as exacerbating many of these other problems. So climate change being worked into an understanding of our developmental challenges. A key part of this is also the fact that much of this hinged on energy. Right? So back in the 1990s, coal was it. It was the cheapest form of energy, oil for transport. And so the perception was, if India is prematurely curtailed in using coal, how on earth do we develop? And it was an argument that had some legs, in a sense. As renewable energy has got cheaper and cheaper, and as India has got better at energy efficiency, and as we find other solutions to mobility, like more emphasis on public transport and so on, that stark divide has got blurred a little bit. Even today, people are talking about about coal. We just had uh, the government opening up coal auctions, for example. So those politics have not gone away. But the argument was, we need to develop in an untrammeled, unconstrained fashion. And that is our number one objective. I think some of the people involved in the negotiations weren't even sure if they thought of climate change as a real problem or as a diplomatic sword, to be honest with you. 
It's only in recent years that we have started doing domestic efforts to understand what climate change means for India. And just very this week, in fact, the Ministry of Earth Sciences came up with quite a good compendium on the impacts of climate change on India. But back in 1990, that wasn't the case. In retrospect, we're saying that India is changing its lens and looking at climate change differently. I'm not articulating it very well, but I'm just trying to think that if in the 90s we had said, okay, this is a serious problem and we need to curtail this and move towards a different order in terms of energy, in terms of how we look at fossil fuels, you think things would have changed as outcomes? You think that would have changed? Well, it's an interesting question. And I think there were sort of internal debates among activists and many activists I was part of would have a kind of a almost schizophrenic stance. Whereas where in India, they would be critiquing the government saying, we need to think about new development patterns, new ways of doing things, not it the West. But when they went to international arena, they would line up behind the government and say, you cannot constrain our choices. And it was a very uneasy kind of divide but many people kind of adopted that, that approach. And I think part of the issue is that, so I think certainly there's always been a very robust alternative uh, resistance almost to mainstream development in India. And I, that's why the Narmada Bachandola and the Chipko movement, all of these 80s, 90s movements were very, very important, both in bringing people together, in mobilizing people like myself. So my first experience was, was a hiking through the Omkareshwar Valley looking at displaced communities. You know, that was that kind of on-the-ground experience that mobilized me and made me study these areas and work in these areas. So clearly, there were another world was possible that narrative existed. At the same time, in some ways, there were hard constraints. Given what we know now, it is simply impossible for livelihoods and lives to be healthy, productive, at the levels of commercial energy that India was using in 1990. We needed more commercial energy per person. And there were very straight development issues, right? So women relying on cook stoves, on burning wood, open uh, hearths for cooking, exposed them and their children, typically those who were indoors much of the day, to the highest levels of air pollution in the world. I will say in passing that the person who really blew the lid on that debate, who really started that conversation, is this very inspiring academic called Kirk Smith, who very sadly passed away this week. It's a real friend of India and sort of social issues in, in energy. But moving to better cooking options required commercial fuel, required India to have more gas. Today, our per capita and electricity consumption is about 1,200 units on average, and the U.S. is at the rate of 13,000 units, right? So an order of magnitude difference. There are just certain things that are hard to do with such low levels of energy, and Despite the fact that, yes, there were alternatives that we had to explore, it didn't seem likely that the alternatives could completely remove the need for more energy, which is why, in a sense, many of us were arguing both sides. And many of us actually are in this position where we have, despite being really not enamored with the mainstream development model, when we talk to international interlocutors, we stress the fact that India's current energy access per person is so incredibly low that it really does constrain basic life choices, including in areas like health, education, let alone areas like livelihoods. Let's just take, for example, you know, irrigated agriculture. You need to have energy for irrigated agriculture. We've done a very bad job managing that energy. 
And in fact, my earliest work was on groundwater and, and so on. But we just need more energy for many things. So it has been this double-edged debate. But the renewable energy prices going down as they have in the last few years has been a major game changer. It's been a major shift. Right. Thank you so much for that. Can you also give us a primer on domestic Indian climate politics? It might serve our listeners well to know what types of perspectives there are. And has there been a change in these perspectives that you have noticed over time? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I was an academic for a few years uh, in between teaching at JNU. And I, around 2009, I left to join the Center for Policy Research because I really felt like the climate debate had opened up in a way that was moving beyond these kinds of binaries. And I wanted to be part of that conversation. It was the years of the Bali negotiations leading up to Copenhagen in 2009. And it was around that time that domestic Indian politics, climate politics began to change. So I I wrote something back then, which is still sort of a set of categories that I find useful. So I said that you could broadly divide up the people in India into sort of three categories in, and these are just you know, stereotypes, but it, it broadly helps to define uh, boundaries. So one I called the realists, who were the sort of uh, development-first realists, or rather the growth-first realists. So they wanted, they felt that the primary occupation for India should be conventional growth. They didn't have much truck with alternative growth debates. So the, the growth-first realists, and they were realists because in the international arena, they didn't think that anybody really particularly wanted to solve climate change. They just wanted to use climate change as a way to stop the rise of China in particular, and also the developing world more general, to, to find ways of gaining competitive advantage. So a kind of a real politic view internationally, and domestically a real sort of focus on growth, so that let's not have any limits to our growth kind of view. And many of our government people were in that camp. The second camp, I think, I called sustainable development realists. So they did want a different growth model domestically. It's the group I've just been talking about who would go overseas and would say one thing and at home say another. But they also saw the international negotiations in quite cynical kind of terms. They didn't think the international community was really serious about this. And if push came to shove, they would always prioritize their domestic opportunities over international ones. And the third group I called sustainable development internationalists. So they also wanted a different kind of development but they had much more hope in the international process. They felt that, not naively, but under the right conditions, global cooperation was possible. And what we've seen over time is the center of gravity has moved from the growth-first realists, which is where most people were in the 90s, to some sustainable development realists who are at least willing to have a conversation about how we should change things domestically, to more and more sustainable development internationalists who put more faith in the international process. So I see the sort of process of Indian politics shifting across the spectrum. And the things that have shifted it are one, greater awareness and knowledge of India's own vulnerability to climate change. So that has moved up the agenda. And in this volume that we've just edited, India in a warming world, which is open access and free downloadable, there's a nice essay looking at media coverage over the last 10 years. And you can see in the media coverage, the narrative has shifted with more coverage of impacts and so on. So impacts is one factor. The second factor is business has started seeing some money to be made out of this, in particular large business. They see us getting ahead in renewable energy industries, in energy efficiency technologies and processes. 
and so on. So business communities have started seeing a gain. And third, I think civil society has softened that view of climate change as a hegemonic discourse and started seeing it as more consistent with the kinds of concerns that shape their day-to-day activities. So these things have slowly kind of moved politics from the growth-first realists to the sustainable development internationalists. Very interesting perspectives. I'm going to move on to uh, India's CO2 emissions. And like, for instance, Carbon Brief has estimated that these emissions in India fell by 30% in April compared with the same month in 2019. Now, this is partly due to the lockdown. I mean, everyone agrees on this, but it's also competition from renewables. So I have two parts to my question. Do you think this will have a significant impact on any climate outcomes? And will they go right back up once things get to normal? And secondly, the NDC pledge on renewable energy capacity is to add about 175 gigawatt of wind, solar and biomass renewable energy. Do you think this will be exceeded given the current situation? Yeah, great question. So Carbon Brief is a great place to track the debate. A very useful analysis and nicely put together. It's my own sense, and I haven't looked at the numbers that kept me myself, is that this drop is almost entirely due to the lockdown. And what has happened, the way renewables comes in, is that because demand has gone down from the lockdown, the demand has not hit every source equally, but has disproportionately hit coal, electricity demand I'm talking about. So demand across other fuels has also gone down, oil and so on and so forth. But what's striking is the government has a must-run order on renewable energy. So if there are so renewable energy has to be used first, right? So hydro has is also useful because it helps to buffer the intermittent nature of renewables because the wind always doesn't blow, the sun always doesn't shine. So you need some technology to buffer that impact, and hydro is very useful there, as is gas. Coal is not good at buffering. Also, to get a little bit technical, renewable energy, once it's built, has no operating cost. There's no fuel cost. So once you build it, it's better to just run it, whereas coal has an operating cost. You have to pay extra to burn the actual coal, in addition to covering the cost of building the plant. So coal has been disadvantaged in all these ways. And the big learning is that despite coal declining as a share of the total, the grid has remained stable, which is something people were worried about. So the competition of renewables has been indirect in the sense that the way in which the demand production has been dealt with has prioritized renewables over coal. So when the economic, if and when, I suppose we'll have to say, given that this lockdown is and, and the economic slowdown is so protracted, when things come back up, certainly emissions will bounce back up. This is a short-term issue. I don't think we should be, as environmentalists, looking to or relying on people suffering and livelihood being lost as a way of getting environmental gains. That's not something any of us would morally desire, and it's not sustainable politically. But what I think we can do is look at these patterns and how we've reacted to get some learnings for how we can move to a better equilibrium in the future. And I think this learning about the role of renewables, the ability to weather intermittency and so on are important learnings. I will also say that the work-from-home phenomenon is something that I think is here to stay. Again, there are many social and other issues to think about. Are women, for example, disadvantaged by having to work from home because they typically bear a larger burden on household duties, which again, this is not appropriate, but that is often the case. Will it change education systems? Are there ways of meeting both social and environmental goals 
through this, we have to learn from this and not in a pig-headed way prioritize only environmental outcomes. And this is a broader theme that I just want to introduce here. My own sense of the way in which India can address climate change is this idea of a wonky term is co-benefits, which basically says we have to find ways where reducing carbon is also good for other things that we want to do. So, for example, more public transport reduces carbon, but that's not the reason we'll necessarily do it. It will probably primarily be because of more livable cities, better energy security, cleaner air, all of these factors, and not coincidentally, actually an important additional gain is mitigation. Right? So that's how we have to think about this. And similarly for uh, COVID responses. So now getting to the question about the NDC pledge, we are at a really interesting moment where India probably needs more power than we have now. It is very uncertain how much more power. We have a situation of surplus power capacity at the moment, which surprised a lot of people. And it's partly because we've done a good job of energy efficiency and we've done a bad job of growth. So there's less growth and we're more energy efficient. So we have more power than we need, which is extraordinary for those of us who've worked on energy in India for a couple of decades. But it's likely that we will nonetheless need more power. Now, is that going to come from renewables or coal? It depends on what investors think is the future of both. And right now, it looks like investors are much more likely to back renewables than coal because it's not just how much money they can make now, but how much money they can make over the next 30 years, which is the time period they need to recover the cost of investing in a coal-fired power plant. So given all this, and given the fact that there's been very encouraging signals on battery storage technology, which would allow renewable energy to mimic what coal does for the grid, that is to be turned on and off whenever it's needed, my sense is we will exceed this 175. I don't, wouldn't hazard a guess as to when and how fast, but the government has also made sounds about 450 gigawatts and so on and so forth. Now, I think these numbers are just meant to kind of send broad market signals. A very ill-kept truth is there's not a lot of great analysis behind these numbers. Okay. Thank you for that. It's interesting you said that, like, it's just like numbers to be thrown out into a market just to give it that stability rather than having some hard data behind it. That's interesting to hear. Can we talk more about national and state action plans on climate change? And do you think one state has better action plans than the other? What kind of financing are states leaving for these action plans? And do these kind of depend on every new government that comes in, for instance? Let me talk about the national level first and then the, and then the states. So <laughs> it's quite interesting. The National Action Plan on Climate Change was put together at great speed because Manmohan Singh had gone to a G20 meeting around the time of the economic financial crisis back in 2008. And to his great surprise, and this is from an Australian negotiator who was at that meeting, told me in private, he said, your prime minister was really taken aback. He went there expecting to talk about the financial crisis. And instead, all the leaders were saying, what is India doing about climate change? And he came back and he said, we better get mobilized on this. And China had just come up with a national action plan. So one year later, at the next G20 meeting, India released its national action plan. So we were under a lot of international pressure back then to do something. It was a moment when the global conversation was really about 
okay, the developing countries have, in a sense, got a pass through the Kyoto Protocol. They haven't had to do anything during that period. In practice, the rich countries didn't do very much either, it must be said. But the politics was, what will the poor countries do now? What will the developing countries do now? And with a particular emphasis on China, but a spillover emphasis on India as the two big emerging Asian powers. So we put together this national action plan with this idea of co-benefits at the core. So originally the idea of co-benefits was that climate mitigation can bring about some development gains. We turned it around. We said, we will focus on development. In the process, if there are some climate gains, well and good. Right? So it was basically a device to say, we're not really going to change anything. But where we see some things happening accidentally, we'll tell you about them. What was interesting about that is, once you do that, you set in place, you send signals, not just to investors, but to civil society, to bureaucrats. And you see that the political elite want to find ways of deflecting that pressure. So we create a set of missions. There were eight national missions, the most successful of which were the solar and the energy efficiency mission. Right? Now you have some incredibly thoughtful and enterprising bureaucrats, people like Sham Saran, who's now a colleague at CPR, who was running the solar mission, Ajay Makur at the Bureau of Energy Efficiency, who's now the DG of Kerry. And they basically saw an opening to really push these agendas. And the government supported them because they knew that these would be kind of shining examples that we could go back to the international community with. So even though the National Action Plan was really initially designed just to deflect pressure, it actually opened up bureaucratic and political spaces, right? So now the solar industry had a place to go to. It had a set of champions inside the government, right? It empowered the Ministry of Non-Conventional Renewable Energy. So in inter-bureaucratic fights, these things end up mattering. It opens spaces, in a sense, political and bureaucratic spaces. And we are now doing actually a project on climate institutions across the world. And this is one of the things we're finding, is that actually you have to build these institutional structures within government because they have these serendipitous and accidental kind of outcomes. Also, people like myself and others took the co-benefits line and said, fine, you guys are using the word co-benefits, but let's not just treat that as an argument for business as usual. Let's look deliberately for opportunities where you can bring development and climate mitigation together, like, for example, in public transport, like, for example, in more efficient housing, and so on and so forth. So it accidentally had more impact than anybody thought it would. That said, it hasn't really been updated for the last few years. We're long overdue a kind of a reconstruction and a expansion of those institutional structures. Maybe we should even be thinking about legislation that would further open up things. Let me turn to the states. So the state action plans, it was a very interesting moment actually when they were created. As part of the national conversation, the government put in place a process in the planning commission to look at a low carbon future. And the idea was to allocate states money for climate change related action for which they needed to have some plans. Now, we did a series of studies on these plans when they first came out. So some of the things that I've described at the national level happened at the state level, right? Some spaces opened up, but it took a creative bureaucrat to use it. So, for example, there were people in Sikkim who used the state action plan there to do mountaintop water recharge as a resilience measure, 
and they used it as part of a larger conversation about water flows in Sikkim. It became embedded in a conversation about Sikkim becoming a green state, organic agriculture, and these kinds of things as well. And the process really matters. What would happen is some consultant would come in. They would say, here's a set of 10 topics. They would barter those topics or allocate those topics to different line departments. They would all go off to their own offices. They would pull up plans that they had on the shelves already. And they would basically use the state plans as a way to try and get money for things they were going to do anyway. Right? So you have this whole spectrum from business as usual to the occasional green shoot of a creative bureaucrat doing something with this. Now, we are at a moment now where states are revisiting these plans. And I think it's an interesting moment, partly because, as I said, there's heightened awareness of vulnerability. And the state plans have always been better at dealing with adaptation issues and resilience issues. So things that the state itself cares about, then about mitigation issues. And just an aside here, when that first round of state action plans the central government actively discouraged the states from looking at mitigation because their worst nightmare was a battle among states to have to allocate targets. So if India had a national target and you then had to allocate that target to states, there would be a battle royal, right, in terms of who does what. So they really wanted to avoid that conversation. But in order to avoid that conversation, they even told states, please don't do greenhouse gas accounting. Don't even add up how many emissions are coming from your state. Wow. So focus on adaptation and resilience. Not this is now reading between the lines and informal conversations and so on. Nobody will tell you this point blank, but it was very clear. We had several interviewees telling us this. What was also interesting is many states told us back then money isn't the issue. And back then, of course, now it's different. We had a fiscal crunch. All states are partly because of COVID and the economic slowdown. But back then there was money. And they said a lot of the things we need to do are not actually tied to financing. A lot of the things we need to do are about changing behavioral patterns, changing plans, thinking about urban infrastructure, right? Those are not things, those are often constrained by institutional capacity and human capacity, not by money. So now we actually have a second round of state plans. We're overdue a second round of kind of thinking at the national level. We have an NDC, a nationally determined contribution. There have been murmurs about how to actively implement that. But so far, the assumption is that the NDC is low level enough and a par kind of NDC that it'll more or less happen in the course of events. And we don't need to do anything different. But I think we have examples where trying to open up spaces and nudge action has resulted in positives. And it's really ripe to come back to that kind of conversation. I find it very interesting. You talked about creative bureaucrat. You talked about change in behavioral patterns. It just comes down to how human beings action on them, right? Like within the scope of their limited power, so to speak, it's just about changing the nature of how you might want your vision of your state to come out. So I find that very interesting. Just right down to choices human beings are making to open up and develop their state in a particular way that they want to. And I will just add that it's also a level of unpredictability, right? This doesn't work as kind of a planning straight line diktat that we will go there and here's step one, step two, step three. You actually have to be open to experimentation, open to unsurprises, and create the opportunities for surprises and create the opportunities for well-meaning people to do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. That you hit the nail on the head. It's well-meaning people doing the right thing. Absolutely. So I'm going to move the conversation now to COVID. And given what's happening in India with COVID, is climate change, do you think, likely to take a backseat? 
or do you think central and state governments will continue to fight both climate change and COVID on both fronts essentially at the same time? Yeah, it's a great question, and I'm in endless webinars about this very question. My own sense on this is that those of us who care about certainly about the COVID response and the misery it's caused, particularly to poor Indians and migrants and displaced people, but also care about climate change, we shouldn't leave this to chance. We have to find a way to make sure that we move on both these fronts and look for opportunities where that is possible. Where it is not possible, acknowledge it and say, yes, you know, the short-term misery may actually be what we have to focus on. But let's give a couple of examples where there may be possibilities. And I don't think we've, we've exhausted that conversation. So one immediate possibility is Mandrega, right? The Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme has been the main vehicle through which money has been got into the hands of people who are suffering from their livelihoods being curtailed due to, due to COVID. Now, how we use that Mandrega money, what purposes we put it to, because those are for public works projects. Can we use that to think about ways of making India more climate resilient, in particular in terms of things like water harvesting structures and so on and so forth, you know, things that would make India more resilient to climate, to, to water shocks, to upgrade the quality of our forests and even planted lands and so on and so forth. Watersheds make them more proofed against landslides. Uh, coastal areas make them less vulnerable to erosion. Can we very deliberately make these a joint objective? That's one example. Another example is the power sector, right? Right now, we do have this situation where coal-fired power plants are being backed down, as I explained earlier, that is being not turned on or being put into, into sort of a, a holding pattern because demand has gone down. Now, what's ironic about this is because coal-fired power plants are being used less, they're not being paid less, and they're actually not able to service their loans, and they're contributing to a banking crisis. Right? Now, if you were to take the oldest coal-fired power plants, which are the ones that are cheapest to run because they've already had their costs paid off, right? That the costs of building them have already been paid off over the years. So they're out-competing newer power plants. If you actually take the money that is being given to prop up the electricity sector, and use it to just write off these old plants. Then you change your whole fleet of power plants to being cleaner. Renewables will be a larger share, and your average coal-fired power plant will be cleaner, good for air pollution as well. Right? And it will improve the health of the sector as a whole. We need to be thinking about those kinds of creative things. Another area is agriculture. Now, agriculture, so we've talked about opening up agricultural markets and dealing with entrenched agricultural marketing system is what the government has, has put forward. But are we also thinking about the way in which we incentivize farmers to grow crops? So in North India, Punjab Haryana, we're locked into a wheat and rice cropping cycle, in part supported by the procurement system that provides incentives for those crops. And so you end up locked into a system where we produce surplus rice, you have migrant labor from West Bengal and Bihar coming to transplant that rice because they have the skills. And you have farmers in Punjab running groundwater to irrigate rice in an area where water is, is scarce. So it's a very suboptimal outcome. Should we be trying really hard to get back to that outcome? 
Is that the normal we want to return to? Or is this a moment to think about even reforming the public distribution system, bringing in other grains, trying to induce cropping pattern changes, keeping in mind that you can't do this on the back of either Punjabi farmers or those migrant labor. But let's at least ask the question, can we rethink our cropping patterns? So fundamental structural things like that as a result of COVID. And similarly with work to home, which I've already talked about, can we find ways of making sure that women don't bear the brunt, making sure poorer school children don't bear the brunt, for sure, those are real risks. But can we find a way of systematically decreasing the commuter load at peak times, given that the country is embarked on this national experiment where at least professionals are trying to work at home? Obviously, it's not possible for many people, but it's professionals that tend to use private cars and private scooters. So it may be possible for them. So my long answer, it's not a short answer, is... There is certainly a risk climate change will take the backseat. I think it's up to us to find ways where these two things can be made to, to go together. At the same time, as we cannot insist that any environmental transition happens on the back of the poor when they're vulnerable. So taking that a bit further, you've talked a little bit in parts about how India should then be addressing climate change. I know this forms a central theme of a latest book, so we'd love to hear more about that as well. Yeah, great. Thanks for the opportunity. As I said, the book is called India in a Warming World. It's an edited book. So it includes 30-odd chapters by people who are kind of leaders in their various fields, everything from the diplomacy of it to the things like the national and state action plans to sectors like agriculture, urban, electricity, coasts, and so on. So as you say, the theme of the book is really that India has no choice but to address climate change. Because even if you only care about development, development is going to become harder and harder in a warming world. And we've seen that with the increasing frequency of violent storms. We've seen that with things like the locust swarm, which some interesting research has traced back to unusual weather patterns in parts of Africa that are in part climate-induced. So development is going to get harder and harder. We have no option but to address climate change. But we have no option but to address it in the context of India's development challenges. So our argument is we have to use this idea of co-benefits, appropriate this idea of co-benefits, to creatively look for things that bring together the sort of development we want, not sort of a growth-first development, but the sort of sustainable development we want in ways that also support mitigation and lead to a better quality of life. I've given you some of the examples around public transport and housing and so on and so forth. And there's an, another point to this. India is a really good place to be taking on this approach because we haven't locked into many of our development patterns. Our cities are still being built. Our housing is still yeah. being built. Our freight corridors are still being devised. We have an opportunity to tunnel through that high carbon phase and go straight to lower carbon infrastructure. So it's lock-in of infrastructure, but it's also lock-in of mindsets, right? Yeah. So right now, we are doggedly on the American or even the Los Angeles path where your aspiration is everybody get a car, everybody get a bigger car, right? But many, many more millions of Indians are going to be moving to the city. And there is no way all of them can have a private car and actually be able to move. The numbers just don't admit of it. Our car ownership today at on the order of US car ownership levels in terms of number of cars per thousand people of the mid-1920s right? That's how many cars per person we have in India today. There is no way we can have that level of car ownership that the U.S. has 
and actually be able to move. So even if people aspire to that, it means we're just clogged in traffic, and we're already seeing that in many of our cities. So we need to reframe the aspiration. If the aspiration of being a modern urban dweller is built around cycling, walking, and public transport, that's what people should aspire to. So the same people who would never get on a bus in Delhi would very happily pull out their app and look for a metro or a bus in Paris, right? We need to create that as the aspiration, clean, healthful, non-motorized and public transport-based mobility. So we have a chance to lock in these different aspirations as well, right? And lock out the private car aspiration. So this idea of lock-in is both on the hardware side as well as the software side in the sense of people's frameworks and mindsets. So I think we are at a really important moment in India where we can deliberately think about the society and the landscapes and the kind of living conditions we want to build over the next 10 to 15 years. And the moment is really now. In 10 years, it will be too late. We'll have done a lot of this locking. And so a framework is to think, what do we want to achieve? Sure, some growth, some jobs, some local environmental gains, some global environmental gains, and definitely gains in terms of distribution and equity. When we face a problem, like how do we build our cities, how do we create jobs, Let's look at it through all of these lenses and find solutions that move us on all these fronts, not just on one or the other front, and certainly not only on the front of GDP growth. And so that's kind of the message of the book. And climate change is, is a thumb on the scale that forces us to think about this. So we talked about the National Action Plan. Because climate change is this issue with global reach, in a sense, amplifies some of the messages around sustainability that many people have been making all along. Right? So think about climate change as kind of a force multiplier and a forcing moment to think about the kind of society we want to build. So having said that, and you talked specifically about, it's just about the mindset, right? So informed climate activism is happening globally. Uh, do you think moments like Fridays for Future actually help? Or in the Indian context, do you think politicians are thinking of these moments as unnecessary noise? So Fridays for Future, Extinction Rebellion are fascinating, interesting examples of shifting politics. And so I've really told you about, you know, we started this conversation saying in 1990, there was kind of a North-South politics where the North was not sure what they want to do. And the South was saying, but they're saying climate change needs to be addressed. The South was saying, leave us alone. We didn't cause the problem. You fast forward to this co-benefits moment where both the North and the South are saying, yeah, we're happy to do something about climate change as long as we can move forward in other ways. And now you have this new moment, right? where the youth, in, particularly in Europe and in parts of the U.S., are saying, no, climate change is important enough, it's an existential challenge, that it needs to be at the top of the agenda. Right? So in the U.K., they have passed, actually, uh, legislation around net zero carbon, which is what they want to aspire towards. Right? Now, in India, I've seen tweets from people like Abhishek Manu Singhvi making fund of Greta Thunberg and so on. It's very problematic. It's very short-sighted. But I think the argument is, so my way of thinking about it is, I think it's great that in Europe, they're thinking about this as an existential challenge. It is moving up the political scale where it's among the top two or three voting issues. In India, it is highly unlikely to be among the top 10 or even 15 voting issues for the next decade. We just have too many more important things. But the co-benefits argument 
right? So, for example, the last election, you had farmers mobilizing in Mumbai and also Maharashtra. Farmer distress is going to get much worse because of climate change. We just aren't joining the dots, right? So climate change can become an important adjunct to politics in India, and it should, right? But we will have to have a different story to the politics there. So I think we need to actually move in the direction where we will have, and this is a big step forward in my view from the Paris Agreement. Many people are critical of the Paris Agreement. They say, well, it leaves things for each country to put on the table. And I think, yeah, that's a real risk in that. There's a risk that we have weak things on the table. But the earlier vision, which is all the countries would sit around the table and agree on kind of a global deal for the next 30 years, was never realistic politically. Every country just would kind of resist. So the Paris logic is more consistent with an argument that says, we're going to move on climate change because important individual countries will begin to tell themselves stories about how it's in their interest. In the case of India, it will be a co-benefits and a development-led story. In the case of Norway or the UK, it might be an extinction rebellion, Fridays for the future, climate crisis story. So we have to allow different national politics to play out and not feel like India needs to be more like Norway or Norway needs to be more like India. That's just fruitless. So that's how I see it. But there's an active debate globally where there are people saying, no, we need a single unifying global narrative. And my own view is, I think that would be problematic. The world we live in is national politics dominate. Global politics are useful in moving national politics in different ways and at different paces in different countries, like happened to India with the National Action Plan where global politics was useful in nudging India in a useful direction. So it's a complicated answer, but it's a complicated question. And I think simple answers that say we all need to jump on the climate extinct, the extinction rebellion bandwagon, that's not going to work. But it's useful in that context, and it's useful as part of the global amplification of pressure that also helps in India. Whatever points you raise actually go perfectly into my next question, which is about COP25. And we talked about Dr. Salim Huck, and he was very, very passionate about laying the blame squarely on Australia, Brazil, and the US for COP25 not succeeding. So, what are your expectations for COP26, given that's going to happen only in 2021? I'm just curious to know. Well, you know, as I mentioned before we started this conversation, Salim Huck is, is an old friend and we actually worked together to set up the Climate Action Network South Asia many, many years ago, and which was hosted at his organization. Many people have continued to focus on the international negotiations. I have made a choice to step away from the international negotiations for the reasons I just mentioned. I think the center of gravity is national politics. And so I focus on how we move the debate in India and how we move the debate in other countries. And at the moment, I'm involved with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I'm co-leading a chapter on national and subnational policies and institutions. And I think that really is the crux of the matter. The international process is important in forcing countries to be transparent, setting up procedural hoops by saying, okay, every five years you give us an NDC, every two years you give us a biennial update report, and setting in place procedures that we can compare one country's emissions to another creating fora where we can talk to each other and we can have joint technology development and so on. But the international process is the follower now, not the leader. And I think that's an accurate reading of, of where things stand. So it's a long way of saying I don't have a very firm opinion on who caused what 
breakdown. But I do think that a lot of the time, whoever gets tagged with the blame has done a worse job of managing their image. A lot of times, there is more than enough blame to go around, right? So, for example, India has long had a view that says that because of going all the way back to the beginning of the podcast, CBDR, Common But Differentiated Responsibility, even the transparency of emissions, the provisions for transparency, how often you file, what you file, that should also be differentiated. India should not be asked to be as transparent as other countries. Now, to my mind, that's wrongheaded, right? But we don't get much flack for that because there are other countries doing even more ridiculous things. So honestly, I have a little bit of a kind of a pox on all the houses approach to the negotiations. And India in the past has managed this poorly. So we've been a scapegoat in the past. In recent years, we've managed it much better. So this is not to sort of bash on India, but we have had times when we have, for example, on issues of climate equity, where we have said the African nations want to have what they called an equity reference framework, which said for all the NDCs, let's assess them all on the basis of equity. Perfectly useful for India. We should have agreed to it, but we said no because we didn't want to be assessed at all. Now, clearly, the politics in Australia and the US and Brazil is particularly toxic right now. So I'm no doubt that Salim is right. And in particular, you have Scott Morris in, the, in Australia, you have Donald Trump in the US, you have Bolsonaro in Brazil, and they have been overtly hostile to the negotiations. So I'm sure that they are far more to blame than we are now. But look, we had Mr. Bolsonaro as our Republic Day guest. If we were so worried about what Brazil was doing about climate change, was that a great signal to send either? So as I said, yes, sure, more blame lies elsewhere. But for my money, it's about domestic politics. And part of what I'm focused on is, can we please be among the voices of the same when we go internationally? And part of that is to be much more transparent what every country is doing and move into a virtuous cycle where India is among that group of countries that does a fair bit and demands that others do even more. So when we use this differentiation, right, it can work in two ways. We can say, because they started it, until they do more, we won't do more. And then you're part of the forces of a vicious cycle. Or you can say, India takes this seriously. So we're doing this much and we demand that others do even more because of differentiation. And then you're part of being a virtuous cycle. And that's where India should be because we're a really vulnerable country. So that's how I view the, the negotiations. So my last question is just exactly about that. How do you think India needs to step up as a leader of climate vulnerable countries? And what are your hopes for a climate resilient India? So internationally, you know, many of us have argued for a long time that India should step up as a leader of the climate vulnerable countries. And in the past, we've even taken flag from some of our vulnerable neighbors like Bangladesh and Maldives and so on for not being so. Now, all countries, I mean, in diplomacy, there's always an element of realpolitik, right? So all countries have multiple alliances. So India has been part of the G77 or the group of developing countries. We have also tried to be part of some vulnerable country alliances, but we've prioritized the alliance of emerging economies, Brazil, South Africa, India, and China. Now, we are by far the poorest of those four, incidentally, by a long way, and our human development indicators are much, much lower than any of those other three countries. And we've also been part of a coalition called the Like-Minded Developing Countries, which includes countries like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, which are oil producers, right? 
So India has kind of tried to keep its toes in all these buckets. So we can have shifting alliances. That's a standard diplomatic practice. But we haven't stepped up and said, we really care about climate outcomes. And we're willing to be transparent as a result, and so on and so forth. I think it would behoove India to do that. It really would. But we will then open ourselves up to flack for some of our domestic policies. So, for example, we're very aggressive on renewable energy, many progressive things, but we're simultaneously aggressive on coal, right? So right now, India has kind of an all-of-the-above approach to energy policy, which doesn't take climate change as seriously as it could. When we need to, we point to renewable energy. At other times, we point to coal, right? So we have a little inconsistency that we need to sort out. I think that resilience is absolutely a key concept for India to embrace, and resilience in all kinds of ways, right? So resilience with regard to our interaction with our natural resource base and the environment. That includes resilient agricultural systems. So not just thinking about which crop gives you maximum peak yield, but which crop gives you a high yield across a range of climatic and other circumstances. So which crops' choices are resilient to disruption? Those are the kinds of questions we should be asking about when we think about our public procurement system and the PDS and all these other instruments that we have, or NABARD and loans for agriculture and, and so on. So we're not thinking about it from that point of view. Similarly for our water system, right? We have a history of debate about large dams that is sort of quieted down a bit, but we do need to be thinking about rather than sort of large water structures or interbasin transfers, so river interlinking plans, what will it take for regions to be resilient to water shocks in ways that don't require weak points like a river interlinking project. We're not thinking about our development adequately in that way. Similarly for our cities, right? Are we able to build cities that don't choke with even the mildest rainfall, including cities like Delhi that, that don't have such heavy rain as compared to some of the coastal cities? So I think more systematically, through things like not just state action plans on climate change, but state development plans. And this is an interesting thing, right? We have an institutional structure where we build these kind of enclaves. Okay, so you have a climate action plan. But let's remember, states have development planning units too. Shouldn't we be mainstreaming these things? These are not side conversations. These need to be mainstream conversations now, right? I guess my hope, it sounds like something a Delhi policy wonk would say, but institutions are really important. So you need to have a vision of what your future looks like. And that vision, to my mind, is this vision around co-benefits. How do you meet distribution, jobs, local environment, and global environment at the same time? So this kind of multiple objective approach to things, not a unitary objective. But if you want to do multiple objectives, you need to have governmental structures that are much stronger, better capable of analysis, that are informed by this vision, and critically, government structures that are in contact with and interfacing with and porous to civil society and to business, right? Because ultimately, government can only set a few incentives and signals. Other people are going to realize it. So there needs to be this kind of porosity and conversation. Why aren't we having systems like white papers and deliberation where we bring in people and we have kind of a shared vision of the future? So as I said, it sounds very wonky to say institutions matter, but they really do because institutions are kind of the intermediate space where we can collectively decide what sort of future we want to build and we can harness government to that vision 
rather than government being sort of something set aside and doing it by itself. And I am not among those who think we can do it without government. I think civil society in India is incredibly powerful. Business is quite creative. But ultimately, if you're fighting against rules, regulations, and structures that make it hard, you're never going to get there. Right? So, so we have to build a state that is also part of this story. And of course, the private sector and civil society are essential to it. But right now, I think the constraint is more at the level of the state. We're not building conversations and ways of engaging and harnessing all the creativity that we know exists out there to build a more climate-resilient India and to realize this vision of bringing about mitigation while also bringing about all these other gains in society that we think are really important, including jobs, including local air pollution gains, including more access to water and energy, and very importantly, a more fair and well-distributed economic system. Thank you so much, Naroz. I was nodding through the whole conversation. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt you, but it's been amazing listening to you speak and hearing all this, such amazing, this is such fundamental perspectives about what's happening with the polity and, and climate change in India. It's been fascinating to hear it. Thank you very, very much indeed. No, I'm really delighted to have this conversation with you and thanks so much for inviting me. My pleasure. <laughs>